welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Marilyn Hetrilees. Well, it's NAIDOC Week, a time to celebrate the history and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But not everyone celebrating. This week saw Australia's first Indigenous woman voted into the House of Reps. But Pauline Hanson has also been voted back in, and Andrew Bolt, a man sued for vilifying Aboriginal people, has been given a soapbox at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Joining me in the studio is producer and presenter of ABC Radio National's Away, Daniel Browning. Hi, Marilyn. On the phone, we have reporter for Brisbane's 98.9 FM and new Matilda writer, Amy McGuire. Hi, Marilyn. And joining us on the line from Canberra, National Indigenous Television's political reporter, Miles Morgan. Hello, good evening, everyone. This week feels like a flashback to a time in Australian political history many aren't proud of. What are we to make of Pauline Hanson's re-emergence? I'm, I'm utterly surprised, but I think it needs to be remembered, uh, Marilyn, that Hanson has contested several elections. I think the last one being in 2010. I mean, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but she's she's a kind of a, a, a she's a quite a seasoned uh, political candidate. So I guess the surprise was she got up, and perhaps um, you know a lot of the media has has rightly accepted the blame for misjudging the outcome, the, the, how close the outcome of the election has been, but uh, certainly misjudged the uh, the rise uh, of, of Pauline Hanson. Some have said that by patronising Pauline Hanson, um, the media will only cement her as the underdog and strengthen her popularity, a bit like Donald Trump. Is this what's going on, Amy? Um, I'm, I don't think it is, actually. I, I don't really understand those arguments. I think they're trying to give too much voice to, I guess, the racists rather than actually talking about the fact that, you know, these are really dangerous views and the fact that she's going to have quite a lot of power mm. in the Senate and her pa- her party is going to have quite a lot of power. It's going to be really bad news for not just Muslims, other minorities, but also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are the most vulnerable people in the country. So I think it's pandering too much to a certain class of people at the expense of the people who are most vulnerable. I don't really understand these arguments. I think too much has been paid attention to it. And it, there's a lot of groupthink amongst white liberals in in the mainstream media about it. And I'm always very cynical when there's that sort of groupthink around that sort of those sort of media outlets. Miles, do you think there's a way to report on Hanson's message of caring for poorer Australians while avoiding her racist commentary? Yeah, look, it's a fine line, and I think some media outlets are going to do it better than others. I think it's worth noting that over 100,000 people voted for Pauline Hanson in Queensland alone, and for whatever reason they did it, they did it. And um, I guess their decisions must be respected. And I don't want to live in a world where Pauline Hanson is... um, you know, hounded into oblivion, no matter how offensive I find her views. I want her to get up in Parliament, and she's entitled to say whatever she wants to say, but I want to see those ideas ruthlessly contested. And I I hold great faith, um, certainly in Aboriginal media, but in in the mainstream media, that when she says something silly, she's going to be called out for it. I think it should have been contested before she even got to the Senate. I think that it shows a fundamental failure of our democracy that a person with these sort of views can actually be elected. I think it shows that a significant part of the population, particularly in Queensland, have been categorically misinformed, particularly by the media. They've been let down but in that sense as well. Mm. And I think they should have been contested before she even got in Senate and she had this yeah. power because she's been around for that long. You know, her views should have been totally 
sort of washed away by now. She's yeah. just talking rubbish. Well, I mean, pe- people, there's no... I'm sure people agree. And But I think if you go down that road of picking and choosing who you want to represent you, I mean, that's what that's what an election's for. You vote for someone, so you've chosen them to represent you. Yeah, and, um... You vote for someone when you have the right information at hand. I mean, the stuff she's telling me, particularly around climate science denial as well, mm. that's incredibly dangerous. I mean, mm. particularly for Aboriginal people, climate change is going to affect our mob in every single significant area in life and to me I think it's very dangerous to have those views that have no basis in fact Mm. and it's it's because people haven't been informed. Yeah and I agree Amy I I think you know the problem is and I think this is a problem with 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 the system uh, and with these kind of conservative elements in, in society, excuse me, <clears throat> with the, cons- the conservatives feeling like, conservative voters feeling like they have nowhere to go. Um, but Pauline Hanson, whether she represents someone, uh, a section of the, of the Australian electorate or not, I mean, I disagree with her, with her opinions and I always have and I, I have to, have to uh, doubly agree with you, Amy. These ideas should have been knocked down Years ago, uh, she had a role at, at a tilt at federal parliament. She's had uh, very many goes at elections, like I said in the beginning, uh, and yet we're still hearing her opinions, mm. and they get more and more uh, outlandish. And uh, you know, the, the woman can't debate. The woman can't contest ideas. Uh, her, her hate and fear and ignorance are, are not political beliefs. They're not an ideology. It's a mm. it's a it's a terrifying but also kind of logical outcome when you look at Australian politics mm. over the last decade. It's been revealed that Pauline Hanson was paid by Channel 7 to appear in their breakfast show Sunrise on numerous occasions in the lead up to the election on a range of different topics. Um, To what extent extent is the media responsible for Hanson's resurgence? (laughs) Well, Sunrise is responsible wholly and solely because they pay this woman for her appearances. Um, I mean, there is there should be some kind of investigation mm. into why Pauline Hanson, of all the candidates, mm. uh, all the Senate candidates, mm. all the candidates in this election, why Sunrise, we mm. all know why. We know why. We know why. <laughs> but there should be some kind of formal investigation. Yeah, These things should not be allowed to happen. Yeah, you've got to know, where do you draw the line in the quest for ratings? What are you paying for? Mm. Where do you yeah. draw the line in what, in regards to what do you pay for? And like, like you, I, I think, um, you know, Sunrise, by all means, they, they have every right to interview Pauline Hanson, but they've got her on high rotation. And I think, yeah. I agree, it's, it's, pretty, it's, yeah, it's pretty ugly. In fact, I remember two years and years ago, Sunrise had it was Joe Hockey and Kevin Rudd mm. were, were kind of the, these weather guys. They were the, they were the the Friday Club, I think. Yeah. And before before that, before those appearances, Rudd was a bit of a well, not an unknown quantity. I mean, certainly yeah. he was in Parliament, but Sunrise gave him a platform, and same with yeah. Joe Hockey. So, as much as I decry it, uh, those kind of television appearances add a lot of value uh, to to the kind of respect that political leaders are accorded, and I'm, that's that's sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she should not, if she's contesting an election. I really feel no one should be, and if and if this was known, that she should not be paid for her appearances. If she is, if she's going to an election, she should not be paid for her appearances on commercial or any other form of media. Agreed. Pauline Hanson actually said in a Facebook video that she'll be refusing interviews with newspapers and major news organisations because no wonder you've lost your newspaper sales and your ratings are going down because no one wants to know what you have to say because you can't tell the truth. There are many reasons for the current demise of news media, but it's mainly about the collapse of the old advertising model due to the internet. When Pauline says the media are down on their luck because they can't tell the truth, is she just plain wrong? 
Uh, I can't stop laughing. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna. You guys answer that one. I'm sorry. Oh, what do you think, Amy? Oh, I don't pay much attention to her opinions anyway. But it's really it's funny because there is a grain of truth, but obviously um, it wouldn't go her way because I don't think the mainstream media is telling the truth most of the time. I think they've got a very limited spectrum of debate, and you, you're not supposed to step outside of that spectrum. But obviously, her views are just completely. You know, there, there's no basis in reality. Well, I, I think, views. yeah, most of the mainstream media is happy to poke holes in her views, so she's obviously made uh, the very logical decision on her part not to speak to them. And what kind of media is she speaking to, though? Yeah, that, <laughs> Who's that's left? Well, who, well she's does she, she doesn't have to. She's doesn't have something, I think. Like, she doesn't have to speak to the media. No, that's right. But, um, yeah, of course, it, I, I would love her to, because um, I think the media plays an important role in defining... She's an, ele- she's an elected representative, though. Well, I mean, she's going it, to have to certainly. speak to the media. Mm, and, Miles, you wrote about how Linda Burney has said that while Hanson's views are unacceptable, her party must be pragmatic in negotiations. How do you see these negotiations playing out? Well, pragmatic is an excellent word, because if she is in the Senate, and by all accounts she will be, and maybe she'll be joined by some other senators from, from the One Nation Party, mm. the government is going to have to find a way to deal with her in order to pass legislation. And I would hope that they don't sacrifice too many of their principles, whether it be Liberal or Labor, in order to, to, uh, well, some would say, deal with the devil. Um, But Linda Burney has told NITV she would not tolerate um, Miss Hanson's views. Um, I spoke to Ken Wyatt today, who is um, Australia's first, uh, the first Aboriginal man to be elected into the lower house of parliament. And he said something similar. He said he'll call out racism when he sees it. But this is this is the mess we've all, I guess, in a sense that we've all created, and the government of the day will have to find a way to negotiate with her. Well, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas announced its program this week. Included in the lineup was Andrew Bolt, and his talk has been billed as a rare chance to explore where his ideas come from and whether he thinks they are dangerous. The progressive corner of the internet wasn't happy. Amy, should Bolt be given this platform? Um, I think it's a ridiculous. I mean, he's been he's got he's always talking about himself as a martyr of free speech, but he's got you know a TV show on Sky News. He's got a the most widely read column in the Herald Sun. I mean, the mm. fact his views aren't dangerous. His views are dangerous to minorities. There's nothing new about his ideas. It says nothing. But I was I was looking at the whole sort of list on on the festival of dangerous ideas, and I was just like. These aren't dangerous ideas anyway. They're all representing the status quo. They have people like, you know, the normal media players, Annabelle Crabb, David Marr. I mean, to me, the festival's just nothing. Mm. Nothing. It's really, it doesn't live up to its name at all. Not, and so I just think ignore it. And I would, I would say dangerous, repugnant ideas aren't necessarily dangerous. I mean, yeah. Bolt, Bolt's opinions, uh, which he doesn't keep to himself, um, they're, not, they're not new. He's, uh, he, he has untrammeled access to the media. He's not a, a martyr at all. He, his, his free speech is unlimited. Uh, for him to get up and, and, and purport to have dangerous ideas um, is is a joke. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at the, the run, the, the you know, the, the guests at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and, um, you know, I won't be, for, for one, subscribing to the festival this year. Miles, do you think we should engage with people like Bolt? Absolutely. I, as I said before, this, this, what I love about this country is the contest of ideas, and sometimes it's a bit of a one-sided contest, especially when it comes to Mr. Bolt. Um, but I'll be there. I'll be listening, and I'll be, you know, I'll be <laughs> raising my voice very loudly if I don't agree with him, and I probably won't. But at the same time, he's absolutely entitled to be there. The Festival of Dangerous Ideas is running a business. They've obviously, they're obviously trying to attract people. Um, and look, like I said, I don't. I disagree with almost everything Andrew Bolt says, but I think he I has think every right he, to be there. 
I think you raised a really important point when you said business. Um, they're running a business, Miles, because uh, Nikki Louie made a really good point about like, commercialization of Aboriginal misery, and that's what Bolt is doing, and that's what the Herald Sun and Sky News does every time they pay Bolt to be on their program. So that's why I think it's a fundamental problem, and I can understand why people were so so mad at it, because it, it's continually making money off black pain, which has been the hallmark of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been the whole history of this country. So I, you know, when you talk about business, I, I really do have a big problem with it, and I just think ignore boycott this festival. I don't, I don't want to see him anywhere near Amy, it and giving him an extra platform. Just following on from that, when are ideas a good kind of dangerous, and when are they not? Oh, I think, um, I think our mob, like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, have seen the exact, you know, the fallout of dangerous ideas and mm. this whole idea that Australia is white, Australia was, you know, settled rather than invaded. I mean, that's the reason why there's been so much amnesia, so much racism bred throughout this whole country. Those ideas, the dangerous idea of terra nullius. I mean, I think blackfellas can talk from the heart about when da- ideas are, are truly dangerous because we've very much suffered from, you know, the ideas from invasion to the killing mm. times to assimilation mm. to these false claims of self-determination from so many Australian governments, successive Australian governments, false sets of land rights in the form of native title, just continual dangerous ideas that have hurt us. So um, I think we can um, very much establish when, a, when an idea is dangerous or not because mm. we're always on the, the bad end of them. When I heard that Andrew Bolt was going to be there, um, I thought, well, bloody hell, I hope there's some blackfellas going to be there as well. And um, it's just worth noting, to put it all into context, Stan Grant will also be at the festival. Um, So I'm glad to hear that at the very least. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking to Daniel Browning, Amy McGuire and Miles Morgan. Australia is made up of hundreds of Aboriginal nations and hundreds of Aboriginal languages. Sadly, over the course of history, many of these languages have died out. The new ABC TV series Clever Man, a futuristic drama with roots in Aboriginal mythology, is bringing them back, and it's getting rave reviews. Daniel, you produce and present Away, Australia's only national Indigenous arts and culture program. Is language the key to engaging Australians? Well, yes. I mean, but can we uh, can we teach our, our languages? I mean, there are very many languages uh, in, in, in Clever Man, what you're talking about on ABC TV. A lot of the dialogue uh, between the hairy people is in Gumbangir, and uh, the Clever Man's language is Bunjalung, which I'm very proud of, my language. Look, yes, I would like... You know, I would like a challenge to be set, and that is, you know, uh, perhaps in, you know, from in primary school, uh, you know, one Aboriginal word that is specific to where the schools are. And, I, you know, I, th- I think that's really important. I mean, we really need to remind people where they are, where they stand, that they stand on, 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 on the land of Aboriginal people and, you know, at least learn one um, language word. Uh, a, you know, a day would be preferable, but a week. Why, why can't we be doing that? Um, but that said, uh, some languages, yes, uh, are dormant to the point that they could be considered to be, um, you know, n- n- unspoken. But there is a lot of language that we can, a lot of language resources that are that are from colonial times, and a lot of fluent speakers alive still, if we can find them. I mean, it's just just a question of going into those communities and finding those speakers. And, you know, we all have 
um, you know, and the other panel members can talk about this. We all have words; they're kind of secreted in our memory. And I know, I know words for lots of things, but I, they're not usually used in polite company. So it's just teasing those things out and getting people to talk. Yes, I think language absolutely is crucial uh, to the revival um, and you know the con- continuity of Aboriginal history and culture. Absolutely. In this project, as the Gumbangi language has been revitalised, the linguists had to adapt and create words to reflect modern society. Mm. Do you think this extending and changing of the language so it flows for TV is a good idea if it means sustaining the language? Look, I think uh, I was talking to I've talked I've spoken to a number of language revivalists or uh, people who are working in, in language revival um, in, in Victoria and in 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 South Australia. And uh, there's one uh, young man in, in South Australia, in Adelaide, who's doing a lot of work with Ghana language revival. Ghana is the language of the Adelaide Plains. Now, his name is Jack Buckskin, and he does a lot of work with, you know, coming up for, well, devising words for things that, that, that old people didn't have. Mobile phones, um, high heel shoes. <laughs> so, and he's talking about, you know, this is to make the language relevant to our young people. And he's not the only uh, um, language worker who thinks this, that, that, you know, in order to make it work and make it fly for young people, we have to be able to communicate with them and share this language with them. Mm. And I, don't, I think there's a really good argument for it. Yeah, there are purists who would say, no, don't do that. Um, but, you know, I think the power of our language is that it evolves. Uh, it, it evolved to include, um, you know, things like guns and fences, uh, you know, in, in, in colonial times. So our people were constantly evolving their languages and uh, you know I, I don't see any reason if we if we if we have the right structures in place I don't see any reason why we can't have uh, new words devised for new things I was just going to say that um, language is fundamentally about healing for our people as well so I think it's very important if you want to move forward as a country you know we have to heal our people first mm. um, before we talk about relationships with Aboriginal Australian that's where language is so crucial mm. you know to, to us as a people uh, can I just say one little anecdote? Like uh, I'm, I'm slowly learning my language, um, Bunjalung and Yugambeh, which is uh, you know southeastern Queensland, not far northern New South Wales, the Tweed Coast. And um, there's a language app, a Yugambeh language app, uh, produced by the Yugambeh Museum at, at Beenleigh in, in, in southeastern Queensland. And they've, this app is amazing. So there's someone, there's a man who's a language speaker who is doing all these translations of words. You have a dictionary, you look up this word, and you play the sound. And I was playing the sound to my um, 18-month-old nephew, 16-month-old nephew, Bodhi. And uh, then the, the word for nephew is burajum, you know, a real role, burajum. And uh, whenever whenever I'm on the phone now, I say that. My sister says, talk to him. He's, he's up on the far north coast of New South Wales. I'm in Sydney. He says, she says, say this to him. And he starts rolling his mouth. So, I mean, <laughs> he knows there's, the, there's, a, there's a genetic memory there of this language yeah. in this young fella. Wow. ABC News in the Northern Territory worked with the Aboriginal Interpreter Service to translate radio news bulletins um, in a 12-month trial launched in 2014. The Translated Daily Bulletin Service now offers three Aboriginal languages. How important do you think it is for the ABC to provide this sort of service, especially in remote areas, Amy? Well, I actually have a very different view of that because what the ABC have actually done is take a lot of funding away from um, community-controlled Aboriginal radio services, Mm, who should be the whole point was to start broadcasting in your own language but have it completely community controlled. So the ABC have actually gone in and sort of 
it's a very limited funding space as well, and particularly with mm. the IAS being the way it was. Mm. Obviously, a lot of community radio stations lost out, and so that's fundamentally taken away yeah. the idea for self-determining Aboriginal radio stations and being able to put together your own news and your own languages mm. to your own people. So I think the ABC have completely overstepped, and they should back off and start oh. supporting Aboriginal I'll, I'll, ju- I'll, Sorry, jump in. I'll, I'll jump in before Daniel has to defend his employer. No, 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 I'm but... not going to. I'm not going to. <laughs> but, um, look, I've done some stories on this recently, and it's worth noting that over 100,000 people throughout Australia listen to an Aboriginal radio service and it it employs around 200 people around the country. And these radio services, they're a lifeline um, Mm. and and they translate, I mean, they they transmit not just news but, um, you know, knowledge and and what's happening in the area and the region. Um, And, you know, if the ABC's done what it's done and that's great, um, but I hope it it doesn't come down to a a cost-benefit analysis where they then cut the service and leave people in the lurch just because it's not reaching or rating as well as they'd like it to. I will just say one thing in defence of the ABC, like these news bulletins aside, um, Patrick Malone, who was the former Indigenous uh, manager of Indigenous broadcasting at the ABC for very many years, was very heavily involved with BRAX, the old, the old um, community radio network. Now he did a lot of work outreach uh, while he was at the ABC um, to to build relationships with uh, community broadcasters. Um, so, yes, Pat, Pat left a long time ago, um, but he, he did some great work and in those old in those old structures. Um, yes, I, you know, I, I would agree. There's there's absolutely no argument for for you know funds that are limited uh, for community broadcasters. We shouldn't be taking that that money away from from that space. Absolutely not. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking to Daniel Browning, Miles Morgan and Amy McGuire. Australia has voted in its first Indigenous woman in the House of Reps, long-time New South Wales MP Linda Burney. Amy, you wrote that while the election of Burney is welcome, the real celebration can only begin when the two major parties listen to the Aboriginal community and make significant changes to their Indigenous affairs policies. I guess what I was trying to say with that piece is more that, you know, it's great to celebrate Aboriginal faces in Parliament. It's always good that to be so but fundamentally they're always representing their their electorates first and what we need is a really robust national representative body in the form of something like you know ATSIC was our last really sort of um, robust rep body but we need that sort of support and you saw with the gutting of the national congress I mean that just hasn't happened so it feels like we're just always taking you know the crumbs when we could be really fighting for a lot more. Mm. You've all spoken to Aboriginal people across the country over the past year what are the biggest issues you've covered? What are the ones we need to know about? Well, I think as a whole, I mean, to me, trauma is a big thing and just trying to understand how we can start healing and un- unravelling all this complex and intergenerational mm. trauma. It means it seems to underpin absolutely every problem in mm. Aboriginal affairs. And I think, obviously, the other thing is just ensuring that we get our country back and, mm. and start revitalising and protecting those connections um, uh, because we're part of country, you know. We're not going mm. to heal unless we... We try and get back on, back to that, so uh, protecting our land rights as well. I hope we can all agree that the biggest issue is not constitutional recognition. <laughs> as many yeah, I don't think it is. It's not the be-all and end-all, and it gets an inordinate amount of attention. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was only a few months ago, it was in the last few months, that an Aboriginal man died 
in a Canberra jail cell. Mm-hmm. Not so, not, yeah, not too true. far from Parliament. Like Indigenous yeah. incarceration rates and suicide rates are absolutely appalling. Mm. And all we've heard about during the election campaign really is constitutional recognition, um, this invasion versus settlement debate. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I, oh, like, there's I, so many issues we could talk about, like out of home mm. care, Indigenous incarceration crisis. You mm-hmm. know, just oh, it's just a whole host of issues, and we're so far. Like when you talk about the debate. Um, and we're talking about Hanson and Bolt. I mean, mm. they're That's just a so far removed. Yeah, it it yeah. is, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's, I think, you know, it's like a waste of time. Incarceration, <laughs> incarceration rates and also the high rate of suicide in our communities. Yep. Yeah. I mean, True. we're talking, there is, there is a campaign, a petition for a Royal Commission into into suicide. And it's one of those unspeakable subjects and it's very difficult to to talk about, but it, we have to talk about it. And, you know, I'd like to see something done on that front. And, um, you know, access access to healthcare, well, the, the, a standard of healthcare that, that people in uh, Sydney or Melbourne might expect. Communities, some communities don't have running water, you know, like yep. it's, it's such a, there's so many issues we need to get specific about, about specific communities and what their needs are. The country has to start addressing Aboriginal people as discrete groups of people with particular yeah. needs. Before we finish up, I just want to ask, um, Nakia Louie from ABC's Black Comedy two years ago, she said she wouldn't be celebrating Nadoc Week anymore. Is it a problem for media to focus on celebrating Aboriginal achievement and culture when social justice issues facing Aboriginal people are demanding so much more attention? Mm, clearly. Well, I've never heard Channel 9 or Channel 7 celebrate NAIDOC no. that much. <laughs> <laughs> I think on the way they celebrate it, like don't celebrate it as a tokenistic sort of one-off mm, yeah. event, you know. Celebrate, if you're going to do a story, don't celebrate the strength of Aboriginal people. Don't celebrate, you know, just all these tokenistic side events and corporations developing raps yeah. and all and, this and, rubbish, you know. The really, disheart- the, strength of our people. the really disheartening thing for me is, you know, I generally take a, I try and get away during NAIDOC week because the demands on my time and, I'm, you know, yes. the things that yeah. I'm asked to do in NAIDOC week, and, I, and I'm, I'm just thinking what I, what I think is if you do it in NAIDOC week, do it the rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Raise that flag. Do whatever it is. Have that sausage sizzle, but do it every single other week of the year. Um, there's actually a difference in the way Aboriginal organisations I've found celebrate NAIDOC Week to white organisations. Mm. I mean, I haven't really made a big deal out of it, and I was thinking today, I was like, oh, I haven't done anything special for NAIDOC Week. And I thought, well, I do pretty much NAIDOC Week every single day of me, the me year. Too. So, me too. Me too. I feel bad? <laughs> I was going to introduce my show last week by saying, oh, welcome to Away, where it's NAIDOC Week every, every week of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um, it's been very tokenistic, I think. But um, yeah, it's really important to just keep celebrating our people, but ensure that you, we don't forget, you know, that there are obviously really horrendous issues happening in communities, you know, but give voice to Aboriginal people first, not mm. non-Indigenous people. Don't take the, you know, media is supposed to be about self-determination for us. Um, that's why we have so many Aboriginal media outlets. Um, so I think white media have to start replicating that, I guess, start giving more voice to to strong Aboriginal people and not just go to the same five or six people they have on rotation, I guess. That's all we have time for on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Daniel Browning, Amy McQuire and Miles Morgan. Thank Don't you. forget, Thank subscribe you. to Fourth Estate Podcast and leave us a review. My name's Marilyn Heptrilles.